0: drum on night dance naked around a fire leaving trouble behind swimming in the water Welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast This is episode 6 and that was never thought that this would happen by The Arkells. The Arkells are a band from Hamilton, Canada playing rock anthems since 2006 My name is Skander I'm joined by my co-host Jamie and today we're traveling to the beautiful eastern province of Ontario, Canada Matthew Green, Member of Parliament for Hamilton Centre, joins us today for a discussion on all things Canadian. Matthew, how are you doing?
1: I'm super excited to join this call. It's so international in nature. Obviously, with climate change being our existential threat globally, to connect with people from different countries on this critical issue is very exciting for me.
0: Yeah. How's Hamilton these days?
1: You know, Hamilton, in a lot of ways, like particularly my neighbourhood, uh, Ward three, where I was a city counselor, my my neighborhood is to the city what the city is the rest of the country. And for a lot of times, there's like the industrial engine, uh, steel factories, they call our they call Hamilton Steel City. And so it's also, I think, a bellwether for the rest of the country that when times are tough in the country, we often feel it first and we feel it the hardest. So right now we're really grappling with a just transition out of out of this COVID recovery yeah. that includes our most vulnerable populations. So if I'm being honest with you, like I could tell you that the sun is shining, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of people really struggling to get by in my city.
0: Yeah. How are you personally though? How's uh, COVID affected you? I'm sure like all of us. You know, like last week, Skinner, I turned 40 and oh, I have well, a
1: four-year-old son. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but i'm i i feel like i've shifted into this place of kind of deep reflection around the power and the and the privilege that i have as a member of parliament around you know my role as a father safeguarding my son to have a you know to be able to protect his ecological future uh i feel pretty good man i feel hopeful because i see the kind of popular movements rising up out of the ashes of decades of neoliberalism and austerity, uh, pushing for a more co- compelling alternative.
0: So you uh, you started your your career into politics, uh, I guess, later than most people would think politicians start. Um, you had first a stint as a small business owner. And before that, you even said to us that you were a football player. Is that right?
1: Yeah, American football or Canadian football I oh, should right. say. Oh, right. Okay, okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um although I did play our, you know, soccer growing up, I I uh, I played football. Well, this and it's a lot of European
0: ways, podcast the word soccer yeah, is, well, is is a uh, blasphemy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I could I could appreciate that. We'll we'll call it uh, you know, we'll call it Canadian football. And in a lot of ways politics is my new contact sport. So, uh you know, it's it's one of those scenarios where you kind of have a choice whether you're going to continue to be on the sidelines and watch or whether you're going to actually get in the game and, and be where those deciders are and in, in my country, I actually came to it young, oddly enough, like in, in my country, politics is still very much an old man's game. Right. And so as an activist in my city, I just got tired of having to continually going to decision-making tables, asking them to do the right thing that I recognized it was way more work to do that than it would be to out-organize, and to run a kind of insurgent campaign against incumbents to just force our way to the table to be there with all the information and where those decisions are made so i can have influence right
0: at the source mm-hmm. that makes sense um,
2: you said earlier how hamilton often experiences um I don't know, environmental effects and perhaps economic effects first or at least earlier um and that, that seems to be reflected in, for instance, the Leap Manifesto, how it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to just be concerning environmental issues. There seems to be a lot regarding um, public projects and social welfare. Do you think that um, this is sort of a, an amalgamation of different important topics? Or do you think there's a, a more fundamental connection between social welfare and public projects and environmental issues?
1: I would even go beyond that and say it, it comes down fundamentally to whether or not we have a democratic economy, one that accounts for the inputs and the distribution of, of wealth to everybody instead of this upward siphoning to the most wealthiest 1% of the country. I think that, you know, in, in the commentary about Hamilton being that bellwether, We have always been a city of newcomers, going back to the 1900s, going back to post-World War II. uh, This is a place where people would flee war, would flee famine, would flee uh, ecological disaster, and and Hamilton would be one of the first places that they would land in Canada. So we have that history. It's part of our legacy. It's also a working-class blue-collar city. So when we had strong domestic economic policies, we had fuller employment, strong unions, benefits, pensions. My parents' generation could graduate high school and walk down to the industrial north end and pick whatever job they wanted yeah. and be able to have one person in the household work to be able to earn enough to take care of their family, to not have to worry about dental care or benefits or any of these other things. But we know that through the North American Free Trade Agreement, through uh, globalization, that many of our jobs got sold out to areas not even around the world, but quite frankly, even just as close as the United States of America to states that would have lower environmental regulations, lower labor protections, lower wages. And so that was our reality in the 80s and the 90s. We had significant industrial uh, flight. We had middle-class flight. We had, you know, urban kind of decay, which is the concentration of social pressure and poverty in inner cities. And now we're trying to kind of work our way out of that. And so You know, when you see the types of unmitigated uh, housing bubbles, where international disruptions in stock markets shift investments into the ground, quite literally into uh, condos and all these other kind of ghost economies that don't really have or or add value, uh, we see significant displacement. So homelessness in our city is significant in informal settlements, people living in 10 cities is a significant growing phenomenon. These are all symptoms of policy decisions and, and systems that have commodified almost every single aspect of our life for the purpose of profiteering. Yeah. So that's what's up in Hamilton Center.
0: <laughs> and
1: I think you could point to any, any industrialized country in the world and find a Hamilton Center just like it, quite frankly.
0: And um, just for listeners to kind of get a better idea of, of Canadian politics, this isn't like a, some sort of this towards Canada, but not too many people, I think, know about on the international scale about the internal politics of Canada, um, unless you kind of look into it. Just the same as I'm guessing... you. Not many know. Canadians
1: know either, in yeah. fairness, Skander. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but just
0: as uh, you know, I don't expect uh, many people to know about my own Belgium, Belgium's uh, politics, which is honestly shambles. Um, so, your party is called the New Democratic Party, or Nouveau Parti Democratique, um, as the country's bilingual. And uh, your leader Jagmeet Singh. Am I, am I pronouncing that correctly? Jagmeet, like hot. Jagmeet, sorry. Yeah. Right, Jagmeet yeah. Singh. Then, um, and and your party is um, definitely like one of the, one of the parties at, at the forefront of politics in, in Canada um even though it whole it seems to hold definitely less mps than like the liberal party or the conservative party um but the ndp stands on the left would you say of the liberals of trudeau's
1: oh absolutely but that's not a very hard thing to do like that's a that's a right of center party (laughs) that kind of masquerades in a progressive veneer but yes we are left of
0: the liberals and so one of the questions i had because you know the political spectrum is kind of different in in all sorts of countries um Like, I was always really surprised at how um, in the US people calling, because I I used to live in the US a little bit, when people were calling, uh, you know, Obama uh, left, it didn't make sense in my head because my extreme right almost in Belgium is still left for America. Um, So (laughs) for me, it doesn't make too much sense. So just for people to get a better idea, um, I was wondering how does the Green Party of Canada, for example, differ from the NDP in terms of, uh, in terms of like ecology and environment? Uh, Because I think as an environmental podcast, you know, we want to get into that. Um, Politically, there's always very blurry lines between uh, parties that call themselves left and green parties in terms of environmental issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll define my leftist position as being inherently anti-capitalist. So for me, progressive politics means an end to extractionary Capitalism and then to this idea of infinite growth in markets and um, and I'm unclear that the current incarnation of the Green Party because the Green Party is going through a leadership, there are some really solid leftist socialist eco socialist candidates that are running for leadership they may win they may take the party in another direction I can't predict that it's not my party it's not even fair for me to really comment where it's going to go, but I would suggest that if you look at their in Canada, the Green Party's reluctance to support organized labor, almost to the point of being anti-union, their political foundation, in fact, stems out of a an oxymoronic progressive conservatism that was very much an environmentalism, but not a climate justice framework. So they would, you know, they would, in a lot of ways. Um, fail to address the social determinants of health that are symptoms of capitalism because they are fundamentally a capitalist party. And there's critiques that we've fallen to, towards the center. The Overton window in Canada and the United States is so perverse, as you've mentioned, um, you know, that the fundamental differences between conservatives and liberals or Republicans and New Democrats are aesthetic in nature. Right. Joe Biden will make Americans yeah. feel better about themselves while continuing to bomb and continuing to you know, be imperialist and continue to support catastrophic climate change while simultaneously California and Oregon and other places are on fire. So we know those things to be true. And I think that there's, an, there's a, a generational struggle that's happening between organized labor, which has tendencies to fall in some places, uh, on the right, for some social issues, like if you look abroad in Europe, things like immigration. You might have so called leftist parties who have hard lines against immigration. In Canada, that is not a thing. So, you know, so when I go back to the interconnectedness of my city and climate change, I know that when Canada is involved in an imperialist war in Syria, we are going to have Syrian refugees. That is a cause and an effect. Of imperialism, mm-hmm. they will come to Canada in the tens of thousands. We will accept them here. We won't support them. We won't dismantle the kind of Islamophobic racism that targets them. We won't be able to provide, you know, adequate transitions or or, or social supports for them. But they are part of a you know a growing uh, a diaspora of displaced people around the world through war and through climate change, which are both interconnected. So the three major themes you know, that I've picked up on that many international institutions, Habitat Three, if you look at what happened coming out of Quito with the UN, um, the IPPC, they know that the three major themes are war, climate change, war and peace, and urbanization. How do we solve those questions?
2: I, I, can, I kind of do, when, when kind of no, normal people are, sh- are struggling from the effects of climate change, it, it does seem to establish a connection between democracy and solving these climate issues so what was the term you used earlier was it um d- democratic economy or energy economy sorry uh, energy democracy
1: yeah it was it was a democratic economy which would include yeah. you know a democratic uh, access to energy mm-hmm. that that in my opinion the nationalization of our necessities of life including energy uh, in a planned economy would allow for people to have a just transition. It would allow for governments to plan for a just transition without being against the backdrop of international mega corporate elite.
0: Mm. You know,
1: whether it's Shell or Texaco or yeah. Imperial Oil or all of these companies right. that change the name to protect the innocent. In Canada, it's a company like Enbridge. You know, we, we look at Trans Mountain, uh, we look at all these different, mega projects that are essentially subsidized by the public by the way so we're socializing the costs and the risks while privatizing the profit and so it's a really perverse public private partnership p3 model under neoliberalism that i think irrationally tips the scales in favor of Of these of these private interests against the backdrop of indigenous sovereignty, you know, land claims, unceded territories, like we've seen here from the west coast, Wet'suwet'en, to right near my my house uh, in Hamilton, a a territory called the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations Hmm. territory, where they're trying to build 200 homes on disputed land claims.
0: Now I've heard I've heard this uh, this name before, Wet'suwet'en, from uh, a few friends in Canada. It's uh, the Wet'suwet'en are, are a native uh, population right of canada
1: they are a um they are a a nation they are you know many nations kind of in an unceded territory in northern bc and what i think is hard for maybe some of your listeners to understand that as a colonial settler state canada the legal fiction of canada we think of canada as being a geographic landmass legally mm-hmm. that it neatly covers all of the borders that you would see in a, in a map. However, based on law, there are many unceded territories within the land that they call Canada that are not under international law or even under our own domestic laws that are not seceded to the crown corporation of Canada. Hmm. And so those are legal claims that are actually have been in court for, you know, decades, generations, yeah. where you have hereditary chiefs that have claim to the land in a legal sense that has not been seceded to the crown of Canada, mm-hmm. which is a very hard thing, I think, for Europe to understand where everything is completely covered neatly within their geography, except for some places where you might have movements for succession like Spain or other places.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, even in Belgium, uh, some parties are trying to divide the country into but <laughs> we, we, yeah um one of the one of the big questions that i had was um was how did you find change to be possible or impossible in your time um in in politics because you were you were at the kind of i guess lower levels of, of like council for uh town and city but then also at the higher levels of parliament on national scale do would you like would you make comparisons between these two roles or do you think they're very, very different in kind of uh, what you can accomplish and how you accomplish it?
1: Well, I'll share with you how I got there, like my origin story. Again, being an activist, one of the big campaigns that I worked on was stopping a big private casino from going into one of our lowest income neighborhoods where the life expectancy is 61 years, where we knew that casinos got 20% of their profits off of 2% of their problem gamblers, where we knew that proximity to low income people meant a form of targeted economic violence. And so we organized to stop this major development downtown. And that's where I shared with you that I got sick of asking people to do the right thing. And I decided that I needed to be at the table at the time. I didn't see myself necessarily reflected in the political parties Mm -hmm. or their leaders or their policies, no parties were talking about racial justice. No parties were talking about economic justice in a way that made sense to me. they weren 't talking about climate change in a way that made sense to me and so I thought that i I just didn 't have a place in partisan politics. So I ran for city council and I ran there like many people do in public service with this idea that I was going to make a difference and that I could um, you know really impact the the day-to-day lives of my neighbors in my neighborhoods, and I did, uh, you know, I went in and I introduced David Suzuki's Blue Dot Motion, which was a, the first municipality in our province of Ontario to support an environmental bill of rights. And for an industrial steel city, that's a pretty significant thing. It was a you know historic thing. Uh, we took on issues like housing, like uh, racial profiling and, and anti-black racism and policing that the process of of reconciliation, I took all those things on as a city councilor. But one of the most haunting aspects of being a councilor, as an example, was that I could get a hundred calls a day from constituents who were in crisis. I could get calls from people who were imminently facing homelessness. And I might be able to, through my power as a councilor, find them in a shelter, or or get them into some kind of transitionary housing. But most often than not, I couldn't. So I would have to go to bed knowing that the person I spoke to at eight was likely to be homeless tomorrow. It's haunting. And what it does is is it makes you recognize that at the city level, you're treating the symptoms of bad national or provincial policy. That in order to make systems changes, you have to go to where those system decisions are being made. So when the opportunity came to run, uh, I ran under Jigmeet Singh, who, who, you, who you acknowledged earlier in the show as being like Jigmeet was the is the first racialized person to lead a national party in Canada, Yeah, that's, a country that's that is purported significant. Yeah. yeah. When I ran in 2014 for city council, I was the first racialized person to ever win a seat on my city council in 170 plus years so there's significant racial inequality based on an archaic two-party system of first past the post that is designed for two parties but has five parties in it yeah
0: and it's not and this is not like in a context where non-whites have just arrived in canada like this year or something so to be clear like my people come from
1: the underground railroad, like my people were freedom seekers who fled and escaped, you know, the brutality of the transatlantic slave trade. So we've been here since the 1800s. Now we're not new, like we are, you know, and it's the same with Sikhs. Like if you look at the Sikhi population Mm -hmm. in Canada, they fought in Commonwealth Wars, they settled in Canada. Uh, If you look at Chinese populations, they built railways, like all of these demographics have been here since the beginning of time, but at every turn, Face the type of systemic racism and institutional racism that have kept them politically estranged from these positions of power. So that's it. I looked at the the, the process of four more years on city council, treating symptoms, taking those hundred calls a day, or the prospect to take a national platform mm-hmm. on a party that was unlikely to form government, but that I could push forward on a political agenda. The fact that catastrophic climate change is an existential crisis to humanity like Mm -hmm. that is the the single most significant thing everything after that is secondary
2: and so it's it's a first past the post uh, system in canada then it is yeah
0: right
1: with five parties and no proportionality and an appointed senate that's not elected
2: much uh, like the
0: house of lords (laughs) this sounds like yeah no this uh this doesn't sound like good democracy to us at least
2: the primary activity of your party is kind of trying to campaign for these issues to, to get elected. Uh, I, I wonder if you find resistance with that, or ha- how, how do you make the public more aware about these issues or help help them organize if they do care?
1: So the thing is, is that the, like the politics are happening both inter-parliamentary and extra-parliamentary. Like, there are significant grassroots movements that are happening, coalitions... Around indigenous uh, reconciliation and land rights, um, resource extraction, you know, environmental justice, climate justice, racial justice, the Black Lives Matter movement in Canada is a historic new civil rights. The, um, I don't know more movement that started, you know, eight years ago, right here in Ottawa it was historic kind of indigenous sovereignty rights. And so that stuff is, is happening. Our party is founded off of a social, a socialist democracy that merged with our Canadian labor Congress to be a working people's party. But then again, because of the over Overton window shift, because of, um, in, you know, the 80s and the 90s decades of of neoliberalism, we shifted towards the center to try to capture power, much in the same way you're watching the Labour Party kind of find itself in a bit of malaise, right? It's like, it's a bit of an identity crisis. And for us, if I were to compare it to the Labour Party, it would be like, almost like having the Liberal Party and the, and, and the NDP together in the same way that corporate dem, Democrats and justice Democrats are together in a party. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. And we also don't reward proportionality. So we can have a popular vote that's not reflected in our seat count. The great news with all of this is kind of what puts me on this call with you all, is that the new Politics 3.0 has, in the same way the internet has, decentralized power. it is distributed communications through social media in ways that do not rely on corporate media to neatly package the narratives. That I can connect with somebody in the UK and Belgium simultaneously to talk about these issues is a new phenomenon that is expanding much in the same way Moore's Law is. It also has its downside with the organizing of the far right, with disinformation, with Artificial intelligence and its role in propaganda, um, but it's still at the end of the day connecting people to people to be able to organize mass movements against uh, all, all the, you know, pernicious mm. forms of uh, of death and destruction that we've been talking about. <laughs> yeah,
0: how do you feel working with people in in a national kind of scale in Parliament and such? Uh, working with people who not just don't share your beliefs, but also or, or even uh, what you think is is necessary and important to work on, but sometimes people who might let's say think that climate change is fiction or um, or kind of completely disregard what you want to work on is that not you know frustrating or, or, or how, how do you get through that i guess is what I'm wondering
1: I think for organizers that are listening, I'm fundamentally an organizer the fundamental question of organizing is who are your people i don't work with people who i don't share values with i oppose them i you know my audience is not the climate denier my audience is not the the xenophobic bigot you know my audience are the the everyday people in canada who are trying to make sense of an uncertain world to be able to communicate in a way that is compelling that is aspirational, that speaks to, you know, a more caring and compassionate Canada. Those are the people that I speak to when I speak in the House of Commons. We are in a zero-sum game of politic based on the party systems that we have and based on the electoral systems that we have. Until we change the system that is representational, that is a real deeper democracy, we're going to stay in that adversarial space. It has been our role as the fourth party opposition to name and shame the governing minority liberals might in so much as they don't have the majority of the seats um, into providing social safety nets for Canadians during COVID. They didn't want to do it. And every step along the way we fought them tooth and nail to do it. Uh, They did piecemeal solutions, but certainly better than what they would have done if we weren't there. So, you know, one of the beautiful illusions of democracy, if you were to look to the States is this idea that there are, differences fundamental economic differences between the parties when in a lot of spaces both in america and in canada the difference between liberals and conservatives or democrats and republicans is a, is a question of coke yeah. or pepsi
0: um so let, let's get into uh i think the the some of the details of uh, policies like the green new deal which uh, you kind of supported because i think on this show Jamie and I both. I think I can speak for Jamie. Um, we've both had views. Yeah, <laughs> go on. Yeah, try it. Try it. Um, we've we've both thought of environmental policies as something that's a must, right? It, it, we we don't have time, and we we have to put policies into place and and just kind of get on with things before our climate deadlines uh, hit. But I think with every episode that we do of this show, we learn how much more complex everything is than we thought it it was. And oftentimes for the worst, unfortunately. Um, And so this has kind of forced us into facing some really harsh truths about about the nature of of our societies and the nature, especially of solutions that are purported to, to, you know, to, to have the ability to solve something like the climate crisis. This is this kind of brings me on to one thing that we were really really shocked, kind of to to learn was, um, and I think affected both uh, Jamie and I quite a lot was how bad um, renewable energies can be for specific peoples. So when I say that, I mean that the impacts of industrial scale renewable energies can be felt not by us but oftentimes by people in developing countries. Who suffer the consequences of uh, things like rare earth minerals being mined at you know yeah. at ridiculous speeds and, and scales? Uh, for example, in Congo, um, in uh, where like uh, let's say like solar panels when they reach the end of their life cycle have to be re- you know th- recycled, which often means just thrown away into again Africa or or uh, sort of uh, developing countries as we know them as we we call them at least. So. My question would be, um, it seems like the Green New Deal in Canada still kind of hangs on to something like uh, maybe industrial scale renewable energies. How would you respond to this kind of criticism that with that comes a lot of a huge price to pay for those communities where those materials come from?
1: So I want to make it clear that the Green New Deal is 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 an ideological shift away from this rhetoric of the private sector being able to solve everything. Mm-hmm. The Green New Deal, you know, when it came out, it was reimagined by AOC and others in the States, was really talking about like a Roosevelt investment in infrastructure that would, would help uh, the economy, that would provide a just transition for workers away from a carbon economy. The way that it's been adopted in Canada, again, kind of a ubiquitous word, a catch-all for an alternative, a compelling alternative to the way that we're doing things. I would I would put to you that you know, uh, steel workers or pipe fitters in Fort McMurray who are working on the pipelines, what they want is a good job with good benefits to be able to take care of their family. I think that they might actually find it preferable to not have to be away from their family weeks at a time to work in you know, a, a, an oil patch. But I think that if we were able to provide significant investments in infrastructure that allowed these workers to take care of their family closer to home, to do it in a way that doesn't include, you know, fracking or Mm -hmm. uh, all these other horrific uh, processes, that they would do that. And so when we look at what a just and sustainable recovery would look like now, because, again, the shock variable of a Green New Deal and of climate is COVID that it will be easy for governments to claim COVID as the reason why they don't do big, bold investments in a transition, why they would want to keep things rolling just as they were because the economy is stupid, right? Like that's the, that's the kind of early language that's being signaled out of, um, out of parties here in Canada. So when we talked about a new deal for people, which was our version of a green new deal, what we had talked about prior to COVID actually still fits. We talked about, home energy retrofits being able to take skilled workers to have uh retrofits on homes all of them by 2050 uh, understanding that a significant amount of uh, of of energy is is wasted on heating homes particularly in places like canada heating or cooling for that matter
0: yeah
1: so that that kind of serves a purpose of you know uh Keeping people employed, uh, giving them long, like long work, not just short jobs, because pipelines are kind of short jobs once they're built, they're built, and, and it you know it provides a shift away from that. So, you know, we're proposing that we look at both both private uh, supports, so being able to give people low interest loans to be able to home to retrofit their homes while simultaneously investing significant money into mm-hmm. that. So right. you look at anything that was built before like the 1980s and they are absolute <laughs> carbon disasters. So that's one thing, the obvious, the obvious conversation around a just transition away from a carbon economy is transportation, how we move people. And this is where Europe has, has by and large remained so far ahead of us that I could visit my brother, you know, in Norway and, and take transit absolutely everywhere or, you know, play American football in Germany. And if I wanted to, take a train anywhere around Europe, I could do that. We don't have that here. And yet the vision of Canada, the East West connection of Canada was built on a vision of railways. And so we, we ended up privatizing our public spheres of transportation when we got into the, the industrial uh, revolution of the of the car where we would tear up uh, local transit to make way for this dream that everybody's going to have a mm-hmm. car in the driveway. So that's another thing. And then, of course, housing, right? Like the fundamental human right for every person in Canada to have safe and dignified housing would include significant investments in purpose-built social housing, including fast tracks, including nonprofit housing, Mm. including indigenous housing projects that are indigenous led on indigenous territories that would solve that question. Like there are, third world examples of housing in my city well simultaneously we have record numbers of building permits and 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 cranes dotting the sky building condos so in terms of you t- you, you talking about a, a broad industrial strategy for renewables mm-hmm. our shift isn't so much focused on that as it is as well as improving you know our electrical grid our clean energy investments agriculture localized agriculture uh you know nature-based solutions and adaptations that would that would make sense for the canadian climate and the canadian ecology and i think it's also the case that we can have uh you know um skilled manufacturing developing new technologies that will help push the 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 fourth industrial revolution right this idea of microgrids and and local
0: Mm uh
1: production right and i think like that's that's our critical path forward.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of what worries me a lot when I see kind of people having policy ideas that that center they're centered around, for example, like electric vehicles. Because I think we have kind of, or at least I've kind of realized that they're kind of a red herring. Like electric vehicles would cause such a demand, uh, an upsurge in demand for for rare earth minerals that. That would just end up polluting so much, but every again, like not in our backyards, but rather in places like Congo or, or Benin,
1: and they don't even hide it. Like yeah, Elon no, Musk <laughs> doesn't even
0: hide it. Yeah. He's like, whatever, let
1: them die. Like he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and no, this kind of you know this fine line between disaster capitalism, ecofascism, all of that stuff is very real. Like there are hard conservatives who are talking about build the wall because they know that displacement around the world is gonna increase immigration. Yeah.
0: And so do, do you think the the Green New Deal in and, and the you know for you, maybe not just the NDP, but for you, does de energization and, and degrowth kind of feature in you guys's ideas or vocabulary? Like this is something that we've talked a little bit about on the podcast is a lot of scientists have told us that there's a need for de energizing. So like taking not just finding cleaner energy, but really reducing the amount of energy that we consume, as well as uh, degrowth, which, which you know, means a, a sort of decrease in consumption as well. And I know this is like very scary sometimes for people to hear: uh, decrease in energy, decrease in consumption. It feels like it's uh, these words should come with l- decrease in quality of life, but you know, they don't have to. I think that's a uh, it 's a mistake that people kind of attach these to, but this is something that we almost never hear at least over here in politics. Would you say that you 've kind of looked a little bit into these ideas of deenergization and degrowth
1: well, I think that that 's the uh, the essence of the retrofit is the understanding that you know by by building sustainable urbanism because again, going back to my time as a city councillor, I know it 's tough for folks in Europe to understand just the vastness of the land that we have here but the easiest way for developers to make profit in Canada is to build on agricultural land because they can buy agricultural land at like $5,000 an acre turn it into these suburban developments and sell them for a million dollars an acre the profit incentive for suburban sprawl is significant and in building suburban sprawl in the in the pace and the rapid pace in which we do, not only are we paving over agricultural lands, but we're also stretching municipalities so far out that all the roads and services that are required to connect communities become only car centric. Mm-hmm. And you know, what we're seeing and what we need and what I'm what we're calling for is, is a re urbanization that is a sustainable urbanization. That decommodifies the real estate market, so it allows people to have tenure in their, in their renting. You know, We don't have like hard caps on rent increases. Hmm. We hmm. do if you're a tenant, but as soon as you move, if I'm renting a unit for $1,000 a month, as soon as I move, they can, the market decides what it is. They can come back hmm. and say, this unit's now $2,000 a month. And so while simultaneously wages, minimum wages in particular, social assistance in particular, disability supports in particular, all of those have been uh, suppressed through austerity, the cost of living continue to rise, and it's created an acute precarity so so not like not only can those people not consume, but a consumerist culture is not a sustainable culture mm-hmm. like we I'm not even clear i don't know if you guys caught this, but like the scandal of the push for the oil uh, and plastics sector to brand everything being recyclable when clearly it's not.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's and if we have to send issue. our, if we
1: have <laughs> to send our plastics on a flotilla to the Philippines or to Ghana, like that's not recycling. Yeah. That is, that is a form of like environmental racism or, or, or worse and echo fascism.
0: Let's say tomorrow NDP is in power in government on its own without any coalition, right? What, or even you, what would be kind of the first thing that you'd want to do in terms of climate change and environment, uh, the sort of first concrete step?
1: Well, I, there's one thing that I've learned keenly from watching the right, in particular the far right, and their shock doctrine of austerity. When they come in, they make no apologies about their politics. They don't try to find a middle ground. They move with a pace and a haste that is a shock doctrine. And I would learn from that. And I would say that the scale and the size and the scope of, you know, the eight years left that we have, or whatever it is, nine years left that we have with the IP, uh, PPC report there, that we would have to immediately halt any uh, extractionary economies or new developments. Uh, We would immediately end subsidies to the oil and gas sector because that's another perverse thing is that we actually spend tens of billions of dollars a year subsidizing the most profitable companies in the country. Uh, We would push for a nationalized transit. I would push for a nationalized transit strategy that gave people reliable, frequent, frequent uh, transit services that they could, you know, make a make a very easy choice and decision to take transit as a first choice and not a last resort, public transit that is. And I would have the significant investments in a just transition and a just recovery that included the housing projects that I talked about, you know, that that would be the government building social housing with government dollars to decommodify the housing market in ways that are sustainable. I, w- I would do that, um, yeah. you know, effective immediately. Yeah. It's the only way, like anything aside from a huge, like a, a bold and um, significant shift or leap for lack of a better term away from where we're at now is just basically putting band-aids on a gunshot wound.
2: I'm quite intrigued about your, your vision of an energy democracy, but I'd like to know specifically how that would manifest itself I'm thinking about what if people aren't really interested in participating in such a system, even if it's fully open, and how much power are ordinary people given in such a process as well?
1: I mean, you're you're asking me, like if if I'm understanding your question, the question is fundamentally like, how do we dismantle capitalism in a way that includes or, or, or incentivizes the common person? And if you look at the way privatization has creeped in across Canada, I was on a city council that voted to privatize our distribution of our local energy company. That used to be a public, it was a publicly funded energy company, Hamilton Hydro, that was, that became privatized over time. And our mayor now sits on a board making $40,000 a year as a board member on this privatized system. The liberal government privatized our energy plants. So the first step is, nationalizing energy through the nationalization there is a first uh, entry point for a democratic process to happen capitalism is not democratic people can say whatever they want about spending money and putting your money where your mouth is but at the end of the day if you look at the, the rising energy costs for consumers if you were to come to them and say that we are going to socialize this good those costs will be reduced do you want to pay less for home energy That is a capitalist question and we've been conditioned as consumers to say, yes, I want to pay less. Okay. Well that means that we're going to take the profit out of it. Do you want to take the profit out of housing? You know, like this idea that I can buy a house in 2010 for $200,000 and 10 years later, the house across the street is going for $650,000 is ludicrous. It is an imaginary bubble that adds no value to the economy. And so to decommodify that suggests, like it, 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 it wakens people up to this analogy, this understanding that the market doesn't owe you that $450,000 of surplus capital. And so, you know, that is the problem is that like, how do we create a distribution of wealth? 87 families in Canada have more money then like we only have 30 million people, right? Like they have more money than the bottom 12 million people, you know, 38 million people, whatever, like the, the, the hard number is, but we have 87 families who have more wealth. How is that? Well, there's no fair taxation. Tax burden has been shifted away from corporations to the working class. And the problem is, is that the old middle class, thinks that they're middle class when in reality they're working class they just don't know it yet because they've been white collared right so they don't see the kind of solidarity with an industrial worker um because of the lie that 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 they've been told when in reality they have well way more the people in my city even the ones like myself who have a really good job and pension and all that other stuff i have more in common with somebody you know struggling to get by in social housing than I do with the billionaires and trillionaires of this, of this world.
0: This is kind of a a bit of a step away from what we're talking about here, but do you often um, speak to sort of scientists or, or people involved in, in climate studies or, or science? So my city is,
1: you know, home to some of the, like the the greatest post-secondary institutions. We have phenomenal academics through our activist communities are, just filled with really incredible scientists. Uh, So I'm closely working with Environment Hamilton. I'm closely working with the folks from 350.org, the Suzuki Foundation, you know, Sierra Club, anybody who is presenting solid policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's, you know, I think there's a generational reluctance from scientists in Canada to get academics to get too, too political. And I think that that shift is changing. Like there's always a sprinkling of radicals, but I think that that's changing more and more now as people are starting to push back against government, right? Because our academics are funded off of grants and, you know, basically the the, the government carrot that keeps people walking a very fine line academically.
2: Yes. Sorry to go back to this, but it's just a little thing I still want to note. So let's say the conditions are met for uh, democratic processes on the economy so it's it's nationalized it, it just just kind of in a almost logistical sense how do you see people um coming together to use such a process
1: well i mean that's the essence of what a democracy should look like right like mm-hmm. i think that a, a democracy an act of democracy has high voter engagement, high citizen engagement. Our systems are set up for political estrangement where people don't feel part of parties. They might vote for a party, but they're third party. It's not my party, I'm voting for that party. And so when you have people take ownership of their citizenry in that way to push for the types of policies that they want to see, it requires a change in the way that we do our politics. It requires, we would have to get rid of first past the post. We would have to reform the Senate. We would have to have people feel like their values and their interests are reflected. But it's it's such a cynical culture in this country politically where people vote against a party and not for something. That is a uniquely Canadian, well, I don't know if it's uniquely Canadian, but it's a very Canadian thing to vote against the governing party and not necessarily for compelling ideas or compelling alternatives to the future. Yeah. So I see, you know, a, a scenario where if we wanna increase, or I should say, decrease the democratic deficit and increase engagement, you know, let's lower the voting age to 16. Let's have it so that like in the States, and you won't hear me say this often, but I would borrow this from the States, where at 16, you would register for a party and you would stay with that party until you withdrew your membership and went somewhere else. What that would do is it would put the party memberships in a arm's length body, we could provide per vote subsidies to parties so that the more popular they are, the more subsidy they have so that we're not relying on corporations or the ultra wealthy to fund uh, campaigns. And then it also allows people to run for office unfettered by the party apparatus who can automatically filter out any kind of radical or insurgent nominations that they, that they would want to see.
2: Beyond the election, are there any currently... Existing initiatives in Canada that you that you would describe as a direct de- democratic initiative.
1: Um, I mean, I feel like they've been stripped away. I think like the most democratic initiatives that I've witnessed, extra parliamentary, are, you know, the Wet'suwet'en asserting their their sovereignty rights on unceded territories yeah. by peacefully occupying their traditional territories. The Haudenosaunee occupying you know, their traditional territories, Black Lives Matter, shutting down the streets, climate people shutting down the railways through direct action. Those direct, peaceful interventions are part of the continuum of democracy, even though they're extra parliamentary. Mm -hmm. But our systems are neatly set up to estrange people until just before every four years when we can re-engage you and ask for your votes. It's like shopping for votes, which is actually the name of a Canadian book here by <laughs> Susan Delacorte. Um, so so I would say like direct action does get the goods, you know, Fridays for the future yeah, yeah. does get the goods because it rises that heat, you know, to use, to borrow, mm-hmm. to borrow on the term of, of home energy, you have a choice in politics to be a, a thermometer or a thermostat. I choose to be a thermostat, mm-hmm. direct action activists are thermostats. Most politicians are thermometers.
0: All right. Um, On that note, um, before we thank you and let you go, I do want to say, clarify for listeners that as Matthew here from the NDP has come on the show, uh, we have also sent out uh, requests for people from other parties. We don't want to be a, you know, a one party podcast. We don't really endorse anyone this episode just to clarify again, is not an endorsement of the NDP, uh, but rather an investigation into the ideas and policies of the NDP and of Matthew himself as well. Um, but yeah, Matthew Green, MP for Hamilton Center. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it. You know, as I say, um, the time is is ticking. The clock is ticking. And yeah. let's hope that we can make the, uh, the type of radical yeah. shift that's necessary to save the planet.
0: Yeah, and we hope the Canadian people listen to that call as well.
1: Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, fellas. All the best.